From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Pentagon has a new health protection level in response to the coronavirus. The new designation is the second highest level of restriction to the building. Defense One reports Secretary of Defense Mark Esper says officials could introduce medical screening practices like taking people's temperatures before they're able to enter the building. New cuts to the Marine Corps would get rid of funding for tanks and most of the Corps' artillery cannon battalions. Commandant of the Marine Corps General David Berger says the programs he wants to cut are too heavy and won't be useful in great power competition. USNI News reports General Berger will likely release a full plan soon. The Army will finish developmental testing of the Interim Maneuver Short-Range Air Defense System within the next 90 days. Colonel Chuck Warsham says operational testing will start up in the fall. Defense News reports the Army plans to use SHORAD as part of its architecture to defend against rockets and mortars. The Federal Emergency Management Agency says it doesn't need to use the Defense Production Act to get test kits and face masks during the coronavirus pandemic. That option remains, though, for the administration to get supplies the country needs. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy at DOD. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What's the significance of the fact that President Trump decided to invoke the DPA in the the first place. Great. Well, Francis, it's great to see you. Sorry, uh, we can't be there in person, but, uh, but yes, um, the Defense Production Act is an important tool for the president to use in these kind of emergencies. Uh, it was designed and and uh, it was passed in the Korean War in 1950 uh, for the, just these kind of emergencies. And the president's uh, invocation of uh, the, the Defense Production Act, one one provision of it uh, last week, it gave HHS uh, an important uh, tool in their uh, quiver to help um, address this the scourge of COVID-19. What are the things specifically that agencies can do with DPA authorization that they couldn't do before the president invoked it? Right. Uh, what prior to this, um, uh, the uh, the the HHS did not have the ability to rate um, contract orders. Uh, it was it's done. This is done through the defense prioritization allocation system that is run by the Department of Commerce. Uh, DOD and DHS, including FEMA, have that had that authority already subdelegated to them. But the executive order gave HHS that authority to rate contracts. So what it allows HHS to do is change the rating on a specific government contract to give uh, have their orders go to the head of the line, essentially to move them up in the queue. Who has to do what in order for the agency to do that? Or now that the president has invoked this, can the agency do it at its own discretion? The latter. So now the agent, now HHS can, uh, you know, determine, look at their existing contracts and even future contracts and set the rating so they can uh, have the priority that they uh, need and so they can help allocate ma um, uh, materials such as ventilators or personal protective equipment to the where the greatest need is. So FEMA saying, for example, uh, saying last night it doesn't need to invoke the DPA because it was able to find these the supplies they needed from another source. That's they're, they're saying we don't have to do this now, they still reserve the right to be able to do so in the future, though. Is that fair to say, Jerry? That's correct. I mean, 
government the government agencies have lots of different tools to uh, procure equipment um you'll see you're seeing this as a sort of an all hands on deck approach right mostly the focus of the administration is on working you know partnership with the industry to say to increase ramp up existing production find alternative um, suppliers put out sources sought and other kind of uh, contract mechanisms to find other um, uh, ways to produce ventilators quickly or PPE. Um, and then, uh, but DPA allows them to do that contract rating as needed to help, um, you know, prioritize government orders over any other orders, when, commercial or other like. When you use the term as needed, it strikes me that um, maybe agencies should look at this as a last resort, or is this something that they should feel pretty free to be able to use when they think they need to use it? Oh, I think they, yeah, they should feel free to use it. I mean, this was used um, and by the Department of Defense during the Iraq War when they were uh, making MRAPs, you know, those uh, anti-IED vehicles to help protect soldiers against roadside bombs. So in that case, in, uh, the, the Department of Defense used uh, Title I, used this authority to, um, you know, get them, um, uh, the different parts to build those vehicles and get them to the warfighter faster. What's the usually the response from companies from industry broadly when DPA is invoked and they're asked, I would use air quotes, uh, to do this or to ask to sell to the government before they sell to everybody else? Yeah, I, don't, I think um, industry has been um, quite um, um, supportive of this in the past. And, and uh, if he invokes the law, they really don't have a choice. Are there places where using the DPA wouldn't be a good idea for an agency or, or wouldn't be appropriate for an agency, Jerry? Um, no, I, th I think, you know, I think it's sort of the agency discretion where they where they need to use it in, in the specific rating of a contract. It, it wouldn't it would only be in this case, in my view, um, areas where there's, you know, real supply constraints, you know, you know, in like personal protective equipment or ventilators. It wouldn't you wouldn't need to do it for. To, you know, you know, other kind of uh, other items you're procuring. Mm -hmm. Based on your experience overseeing this with the Pentagon, Jerry, are there roadblocks here? Are there bumps in the road that agencies could run into when they invoke DPA, or is it pretty straightforward? Uh, this part is pretty straightforward. Um, there's another component, um, as I had mentioned in the beginning, there are several components of, um, of, of DPA. One of them is, is uh, what we call Title III, which is the ability to um, uh, procure, um, you know, um, or build uh, factories or areas um, to help support an industrial capacity. And that's a longstanding program that has been executed by the Department of Defense to build capacity and things like rare earth um, uh, metals, uh, beryllium, where they're building factories and the like. And so that is, is an existing program, and I'm confident my former colleagues are working night and day to identify potential projects they could do for to respond to COVID-19. But this, th those would not be done in a week. Those, those would take some time to develop and get the president to approve and, and then do the procurement. We have less than a minute left, Jerry. Is this something that eventually the White House or the administration will rescind and its time will pass? Or is this something that now that the president's opened it, it's open for the foreseeable future? Uh, for the uh, the delegation authority of a contract rating to HHS, I, 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 I have to look at the executive order, but it, it, it can be longstanding. It can be a... Um, permit delegation for the and because it, it identifies specific areas but in general it's done these kinds of things are done for a specific crisis like the um uh, the president could also do something 
could uh, use part of DPA to, to essentially take over the uh, production or the allocation of material in a specific industry through ventilators or the like, which there's been a lot of discussion about. And the president has not invoked that part of DPA. That would not be taking ownership, but that would be taking more con direct control of, um, of uh, the sourcing of ventilators and the like. Jerry McGinn, thanks very much, my friends. Great to have you on. Great to see you, Francis. Stay safe. Up next, industry and DOD teaming up to respond to the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, industry's challenge list and the plan to address those challenges. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Pentagon and the National Defense Industrial Association are working together to respond to the coronavirus threat. The goal is to make sure the defense industrial base has enough money and cash flow to stay up and running, to give guidance to contractors, and to keep the supply chain flowing. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired, is president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. General, thanks for coming on. What's this partnership look like? At what level are you working with DOD? And what's the nature of the dialogue? So it uh, started last week. It was uh, every day of the week. We've gone to every other day of the week now. We have uh, uh, a day, like I said, every other day of the week, phone call with um, uh, leadership inside the Pentagon from uh, uh, Secretary Lord's office, DCMA, uh, the contracting folks. Uh, and it's really about communication, Francis. It's our ability to get uh, problems, impacts, thoughts from industry to OSD. And then the reverse is hearing what OSD is doing and, and figuring out ways to move forward. I think ultimately it's a great communication. My hat's off for DOD for doing it, but it really is about making that communication uh, work. What's the major message that you're taking to them from Industry Hawk? Well, the biggest message we're taking is the fact that, uh, you know, this is unprecedented times. And at the end of this, we still have to have the strongest uh, national security in the world, and we have to have the strongest. Uh, defense industrial base to support that national security and uh, we need uh, it's going to take some extraordinary measures to make sure that uh, when we get through this which we will uh, that we have that incredible defense industrial base to support our warfighters. What's the department telling you that they need industry to do for the department right now? Well, we need to keep working uh, as much as we can. We need uh, the defense industrial base needs to uh, keep the supply chain going. Uh, we need to learn lessons so we understand the fragility of the supply chain. We need to keep a workforce. I think that's one of the biggest impacts. Uh, everyone knows that uh, there is a challenge with workforce today uh, from everywhere from trades and welding up to STEM and, and computer programming. Uh, so our ability to continue to um, maintain that workforce, uh, keep it uh, engaged, keep it trained so that it can do the mission we need to do in, in, inside that defense industrial base. You and I have talked on many occasions about the defense industrial base supply chain and the potential threats to it. This is a threat that some people saw coming, but we haven't seen addressed in a particularly deliberate fashion, I would say, in the past maybe five to ten years. What lesson do we learn in that respect? This will probably happen again at some point in time, that there will be some kind of a threat like coronavirus. What do we pay attention to as we're moving through this to take those lessons away at the back end, Hawk? That's uh, a, it's a great point, Francis. You know, we know what China wants to do. We know China wants to replace us as the strongest economy in the world. 
We know that China wants to write the rules and change the world order, and we know that they want to do it to suit them and only them. And so, uh, and they've been doing it. They write about it. They've been doing it uh, for, you know, 25 years, two and a half decades. Um, what we need to do is understand where the fragility in that supply chain uh, is. We need to understand where single point failures are. We need to understand the, the philosophy and the strategy that China's going after. Uh, and we need to counter that. And we can. We have the, you know, the best industry in the world. Uh, but we can't, you know, allow ourselves to be uh, undercut by predatory lending where they use, uh, you know, the government supplies the the money for uh, to undercut our businesses, to steal our IP, to do predatory lending practices. So I think it really is, we will, when we walk away from this, I think we'll have a great, a much better understanding of where the supply chain challenges are. And we need to learn those lessons and make sure we use all our tools available to correct those challenges. In respect to those vulnerabilities, Hawk, you used a term a moment ago that I think is interesting, single point failures. I've heard that term before. But I wonder at what point it makes sense to build in redundancies to prevent those single point failures in the future. How should industry broadly analyze where those potential failures are and what's the department's responsibility in shoring them up? Well, I think, uh, you know, one thing is to is to use things like the Defection Production Act, which has already gone into effect, but after the fact uh, to support industry that may just because of, of the way that a free enterprise and a democratic liberal society works is to pay a little extra for some things so that we keep suppliers in the supply chain. Uh, so we're not, um, we don't have a single point from another country uh, that can undercut us or stop supplying us when they so choose. So uh, things like that, I think uh, an industry is gonna have to um, you know, make those ends meet so that we can keep those uh, uh, that capability uh, producing for the U.S. government and the national security of the nation. So it's things like that that we need to do and understand where those points are. The benefit the United States has, though, is we do have friends, partners, and allies, and we can take advantage of that as well, which our potential adversaries don't have. So I think that's another way where we can work closely with friends, partners, and allies uh, to build a robust and uh, sustainable supply chain. We have about a minute left, Hawk, and normally in, in at this point in the conversation, I would ask you what you're going to watch next. I'm not even sure that's a, a question that I can ask in times like these. Um, is there something that you think you can latch on to to watch in the coming weeks, or do we just have to kind of let this happen organically, what we're up against? Well, I, you know, first of all, I, I'd say my hat's off again to DOD and everything they're doing to keep the lines of communication open. They're really working hard at this. And, and you know, I think we reached a deal last night about one in the morning in Congress for the stimulus package. Um, uh, you know, we're combing through that to find out what the actual language is. Things like equitable adjustment and, you know, uh, some of those things that we need to make sure we get right for our defense industrial base. General, thanks very much as always. It's great to have you on. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's great to see you. Thanks, Francis. You take care of yourself, okay? Thank you. Up next, using the coronavirus as an incentive for IT modernization. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the digital Air Force will transform the way the service looks at IT. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
The Air Force is using the coronavirus pandemic to its advantage. It's ramping up its IT modernization efforts through the Digital Air Force Initiative. Lauren Nausenberger is the Chief Transformation Officer at the Air Force. Lauren, welcome back. It's nice to have you on the program. What is the Digital Air Force Initiative and how are you trying to leverage this unusual time to your advantage? Absolutely, always good to see you, Francis, and always excited to talk about this topic. But yes, you're absolutely right. There have been a number of efforts that we have been pushing for quite some time to modernize our infrastructure and to really connect people uh, to be able to do their work and complete their mission from wherever they are. And of course, with this pandemic, we now have over a million Department of Defense employees who have to work remotely. And so there have been a few uh, troubles with that, of course, like with any business, if you're not used to having over a million people touching your remote infrastructure, um, you know, companies all over the world are, are really testing those bounds. So the good news is we did a pretty good job preparing, but we are very systematically going after the places where, you know, we break the VPNs one day, for instance, or, or flood the conference calls. You know, we're able to fix those things and make sure that now and going forward that we have the, the bandwidth that we need and the focus that we need. What's but even, I'm sorry, go ahead. Further, uh, but, sorry, Francis. No, that's uh, okay. What I'm most excited about though is that we are pushing uh, the collaboration tools um, that we've wanted to get out quite some time. We've launched Mattermost. We're about to expand Office 365 to the entire department uh, so that folks can collaborate on tools like Teams and be working in real time coordinating with documents, um, just pushing through some of the zero trust projects we've worked for some time. It, it's very exciting what we've been able to accomplish and the next three weeks will be key for this as well. What's coming in the next three weeks or what are you tracking in the next three weeks that makes that such an important and uh, as you say, exciting time for you, Lauren? Well, first we will be able to actually roll out, uh, we believe Office 365 across the department um, and get all of the folks that are currently disconnected, reconnected through collaboration tools. We've already launched things like Mattermost um, and are, are pushing tools like Zoom and WebEx more than we have before. And so really we've recognized that we have a few things that we need to shore up. We have some of our best people working on getting all of those engineering tasks in place. And so, so that's why it's an exciting time. We have more focus than we've ever had on all of these things that we must get done because it, it is a crisis right now. We have to fix this in order to continue to work remotely for however long we need to. You're one of the people that I enjoy talking to in government because you understand not just the technology piece, but the acquisition piece of this, Lauren. What have you had to do differently, or, or uh, the Air Force had to do differently, or think about in a different way acquisition-wise to be able to bring these kinds of tools into the department? So the good news is we've been preparing this for some time. And so we haven't had to do anything wild on the acquisition front. Um, a lot of things we've wanted to do, we had contracts in place already. It was just a matter of concentrating those funds and efforts around really getting them done and driving them home. And so, um, but I will tell you one example, we have the AppWorks team um, working very quickly to launch a Cyber Phase Two effort um, we haven't disclosed the, the amount of money yet, but it should be quite a good chunk of change for small businesses who can very rapidly come up with innovative solutions to, uh, to go after the COVID crisis. Um, anything from 3D printing N95 masks 
um, to just um, doing medical care, uh, both for airmen and for high-risk uh, communities. I saw a report the other day that uh, the Space Acquisition Unit is going to proceed with its first meeting the beginning of April. It may be a virtual meeting. Is that, it sounds to me like that's the kind of thing that you're talking about that not long ago might not have been possible. That meeting now, um, the leader says, will happen whether it has to be virtual or whether it can be in person. Strikes me that's the kind of thing that you're talking about here. The mission will continue regardless of where and how it has to happen. Absolutely true. Yes, um, really, I mean, we are a very high touch community and we also have to do a lot of work in the classified realm. Um, but there are plenty of things that we can do in the unclassified realm to keep projects moving forward. A lot of key vendor partnerships that we have that don't have to be classified. And so those are the things that are, that are really easy to um, expand into tools like Zoom and WebEx and, and expanding our Microsoft capabilities um, to continue to stay connected and continue driving everything forward. But one thing that's really interesting is um, we're gonna have more people on, on Teams unclassified than on email unclassified um, over the next few weeks. And in places where people have really adopted collaboration tools, um, there have been many articles written on how email is now dead, um, you know, things like that. So I'm really interested to see what happens with a military audience that is so reliant on email and what happens when we start really embracing these collaboration tools. Um, maybe we'll save our inboxes a little bit. What do you think, Chris? Um, well, I think we have about 30 seconds left, Lauren, and I, I, it strikes me that the advantage that you have is a whole department full of early adopters to technology of all different kinds, whether it's back office or tip of the spear. Well, I, I don't know that people often call us early adopters, but in this case, we were well prepared for a crisis and uh, had everything ready to go, and I'm just excited we get to light the engines and go. Lauren Nausenberger, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you. All right, great to see you, Francis. Stay well. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.